We're going to turn to God's Word, and we're reading, first of all, from the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. But when the Pharisees, oh, I've got the wrong translation here, I'll I'll read from here. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. For all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then we're going to read from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. These words are very familiar to us, and we're reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away the ways of childhood behind me. (coughs) For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith and hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to Your Word that is given in love this morning, We pray that you would raise within us love for you, love for your word, love for your people, and that your Holy Spirit may speak to us 
as we contemplate it together. Amen. Well, if I were to choose just a few passages of Scripture as opposed to verses that we felt familiar with, 1 Corinthians 13 would probably be one of them. And I can probably tell you as we read that where your minds were going. Perhaps to a funeral, but much more likely to a wedding, was it not? Those words that are so often read at weddings, the soaring poetry of 1 Corinthians 13. And you can just imagine the young couple arm in arm, the confetti, the wedding march, and those Bible verses. I'm going to blow your presumptions away for a moment, though, because that passage was not written for a wedding. It wasn't even written with a marriage in view. It wasn't written even with romantic love in view at the time. It was not written with a young couple gazing into each other's eyes. Paul actually did write about marriage in 1 Corinthians, but not in chapter 13. So, maybe at the wedding, we should read what Paul actually said about marriage in, in 1 Corinthians. Here's what he said, I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it's good for them to remain as they are, like I am, but if they do not have self-control, they should marry, since it's better to be married than to burn with desire. You want to read that at a wedding? What Paul's saying is better not to get married at all. That's more like a best man's speech, isn't it, than, a, than, than what you'd read at a wedding. And he's going on to say something that's even more amazing. He says, if they can't control themselves, they should get married. So, what he's basically saying is, if you're full of passion, get married. That's the antidote. That'll kill the passion. <laughs> That'll kill all your desires. Get married. Now, I don't think we read that at weddings very often, do we? Um, in fairness, Paul will write about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 in beautiful verses where he talks about the love of a husband and a wife being like the love of Christ for the church, and that's a good version to read at weddings. But that's not what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. Now, here's a second thought, because sometimes when people say 1 Corinthians 13, they imagine that Paul wrote this beautiful poem and thought, what will I call it? What will I call it? I know, I'll call it 1 Corinthians 13. Newsflash. He didn't call it 1 Corinthians 13. It's called 1 Corinthians 13 because it comes right before 1 Corinthians 12. And that comes before 1 Corinthians 11 and all the way back to 1 Corinthians 1 and it goes on, 1 Corinthians 14. The point is, it comes in a context and if you want to understand it, we have to read it in that context. And that takes us back to the church in Corinth and it's been the church that we've been looking at over the last few months, isn't it? We've been learning a little bit about the church that Paul wrote it to. And in some ways, it was a brilliant church. It was growing. There were more people coming weren't a lot of them, but there were more than there had been last year, and that was always fantastic. And they were vibrant as well. When they came to worship, there was a whole variety of people, from rich people to slaves, that were all coming along. And as they were, as they were exercising spiritual gifts there, they were speaking in tongues. They were using words of prophecy. They were delving into the deep things of God together. There was a sense of the Holy Spirit moving among them. They, they were what we would call today a charismatic church, a church 
which had an awareness and worship of the Holy Spirit and all sorts of things that were going well. But, but, when Paul writes the whole of the letter to the Corinthians, he's not pleased with them because there's some things going disastrously wrong, and we've seen a few of those as we've gone through this. They were divided. There were factions with different leaders, somewhere in the Paul fan club and somewhere in the Apollos fan club, and some thought they were better than both of them. They were boastful. They were wondering about who was up and who had the power in the church and who had the influence, and that was important to them. They were using gifts, certainly, but they were using gifts in a sort of way that was all about bigging me up. I will come with my gifts, and I will use my gifts because I want the place to use my abilities and look at me. That's what they were doing. They weren't using gifts to build each other up. And in fact, some of them were having such disputes about one another, they were ending up down at the local sheriff court suing one another for whatever reasons we don't know. They couldn't sort matters out between themselves. And then there were things going on in the church. There was scandalous sexual behavior going on. Nobody really cared. Nobody was going to do anything about it because it's nothing to do with me. And then in chapter 11, we learn when they came to have a meal together, And they called it the Lord's Supper, but when they gathered in a house somewhere, the rich folk went away, their bellies full and maybe even drunk, and the poor folk that had come to the meal went away hungry. And Paul said it was an absolute scandal. See, what you have here is a bunch of people that are loving being church, but they are taking on the cultural values of the day. The living in a way which had nothing to do with Jesus who gave Himself up on the cross in love for them. And Paul is furious with them. Chapter 12, he says, you're supposed to be the body of Christ. You're supposed to use your gifts and abilities not to satisfy and fulfill yourself. And we can do a wee bit of that, can't we? I've got this gift and I love to use it in church because I'll feel that I'm involved. But you're actually supposed to use your gifts to bless and to build up each other, and he talks about building up the body of Christ together. And then he ends chapter 12 with saying, and now I will show you the most excellent way. And he leads into chapter 13 on love. Now, does that put it into a bit of a different context? So, we're going to have a a look through the verses of this, and I, I want to just show the first three verses where Paul says how vital love is, and then the next four verses where he says what love is, and then the final verses that talk about why love matters. So, first of all, in the first three verses, he talks about how vital love is. Now, if you remember back to the book of Acts right at the start when the Holy Spirit fell, the people spoke in tongues. That meant they spoke at that point in in foreign languages. They had this miraculous gift that let them be understood, and it was vital to the church. And that seemed to continue in the early church. It, it, It continues in the church today sometimes, where people speak in tongues, not in foreign languages, but almost in a heavenly language, which allows them to express from their hearts as the Holy Spirit moves them the things that are on God's heart. That's another whole question for another whole sermon sometime. Paul says that's a good thing, but he comes and he says this, you can do all those things, those amazing gifts, but if you have love, not, then you are that symbol, that gong. Some of the scholars think that 
this has a reference to something that was going on in Corinth. Corinth was famous for its brass work, and it seemed like what they might have been doing in the theaters is using, they didn't have a sound system like we have, an acoustic bronze vase, which if you spoke into it had an echo, and that allowed you to project your voice. Um, and then there's the symbols. The symbols were often used in pagan worship where they would have lots of dancing and frenzy and drink and they would be banging symbols. And it's as if Paul says, you can have all the best worship in the world here, but if you don't have love, it's like empty actor speeches and pagan worship. It's not of the Holy Spirit at all. And that echoes the words that we heard in Amos 5 earlier where God says, I hate the noise of your worship because it's not actually about love and about justice. You know, we have an awful lot of debates in churches about the forms of music. Do we like modern? Do we like old? What instrument will we use? How will we fund that? Will we have a band? All those things. But we often miss that actually at the heart of it is what really pleases God which is love, or it's just all offensive noise. And then Paul goes on to speak about other things that were really important to the Corinthians. Prophecy. Uh, prophecies, just people speaking the very Word of God, God speaking through them. That can happen in preaching. We, we hope it does. That as, we, as we preach, we hear something of what God wants to say. It can also happen in just words of wisdom that people have. You, you'll know yourself when you've been speaking with Christians in a debate and someone said something which has just felt as if God was speaking right into that place. Paul says that's fantastic. And then he speaks about faith. Faith is fantastic that, that Jesus talked about faith that could move mountains if it was strong enough. What is it to have that type of faith? Or oh, there's knowledge. And we'll talk about that later as we go into chapter 15, to know God's truth, to know God's purposes, to understand what He's doing in the resurrection. All these are important but Paul says, if there is no love, they're all worthless. And then giving to the poor, giving to those in need, or even suffering in our own bodies, that could be being persecuted or, or, or it could just be working so hard that it tires you out. And here again, Paul is alluding to some of the things Jesus said to the rich young man about the best way to be a disciple was to sell all you have and give it to the poor. Paul says, even if you do that, even if you do the things where other Christians are looking at you and saying, what a fantastic sacrificial life, love this, life this person lives, if you don't do it out of love, then it is completely worthless. Now, these things are a real challenge to us today. You know, I love preaching. I hope you love it too. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. But you know, the, the problem with preaching can be this. If we just love preaching for our own sake, we've got a problem. Because I can love to preach, but do I love the people I preach to? And you can love to hear good preaching because it, it teaches you things or, or, or you enjoy it, but do you do it out of a place of a love of God moved in your soul and in your heart? Because one day, and we'll talk about this later, when we're in the perfection of heaven, there will be no preaching because there'll be nothing to teach you because you'll know it all. Will I love you then? Or will I feel, ugh, 
I'd really only like them because I could preach to them. Do we love people or do we love the preaching? And we might take the other thing about, about giving to the poor. It's great to love to, work, to, to run food banks and give to good causes and share what we have. It's great to love those things. Fantastic that we do those things. They're, they're, they're essential to the church and its work for social justice. But here's the question. Do you love the poor? Do you do it because you care for folk? Because I've watched people, and we've all watched people that are really into doing charity, but they're not really into the people <laughs> that they're doing it for. They like giving to things because it makes them feel good. They like doing things because they see them making a difference. They like doing the, the, the work, but they don't care about the people. Here's a news flash. Not only will there be no preaching in heaven, there will be no poverty. So if you've based your life on doing things for poor people and caring for folk, that's great. But how will you get on when you're sitting with the people for all eternity and there's nothing to do that makes you feel important. I often have said to churches that this is the hardest thing. We, we used to have a, a cafe, and we had folk that came in that were homeless. And people in churches wanted to help them, which is great. They wanted to buy them something or take them home and give them a bath or, or, or find them a house or solve their problems or phone the social work department, do something. But actually to say to people, actually, you're not here to do something, you're just here to befriend, to love, to talk, to listen. Do we have love? If we don't love God, if we don't love our neighbor, then we can do all these external things, but Paul says ultimately they are hopeless. So that's why love is the main thing. What is love? And this is the beauty of this poem, isn't it? Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always loves, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, I just wonder as we read that, what do we see? Because this shouldn't point us to poetry, it should point us to people. Who has loved like that? There is only one answer, isn't there? As we read the gospel stories and we see the love, the compassion of Jesus Christ and all that He gives, we see Jesus. We see His work on the cross for us and for the world. And that's what love points to here. But here's another exercise, because this also invites us to look closely at ourselves. I was told to do this when I was young, and I've always found it really hard. Take the word love out and put in your own name. Alistair is patient. Alistair is kind. Don't hear Alistair, hear your own name. In fact, say your name with me. Read it with me, but put your own name in. Okay, try it. Alistair is patient. Alistair is kind. Alistair does not envy. Alistair does not boast. Alistair is not proud. Alistair does not dishonor others. Alistair is not self-seeking. 
Oh. Can you go on? Or are your head shaking when you suddenly realize that you thought you were full of love, but you're not? And yet here is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is what God is making you to be like, like Jesus. That is what God's perfection is. Change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. We will sing these songs later on as we sing Love Divine. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. That's it. That's what God is doing in your life. Let that challenge you. Let that move you, not to guilt, but to prayer, humble prayer of confession, but also of allowing God to work in you to be like that. That is what love is. But here's the other challenging thing about this. Because if I said to our society today, what is love like? I'm not sure I would get these things. I think what we get is that love means being nice. Love means being, well, patience, all right, we can cope with that, but it certainly means being tolerant, being affirming, being inoffensive, not rocking the boat with people, accepting them as they are. But here's something else that's going on here that's important to hear. Because Paul says, Love does not envy. And as the Corinthians heard those words, it wasn't just that they were putting their own names in there. They would have heard back in chapter 3 where Paul had said, your factions show that you do envy. And a few of them are going, he's getting us. And then he goes on to say, love does not boast. Well, chapter 1, he spoke about boasting. Chapter 3, he said they were boasting in their leaders. Chapter 4, he said you're boasting in your gifts. And I think there's a few more of them going, he's getting at me. And then he says, love is not proud. It's not puffed up. Well, four times he's already told them that they're puffed up and they're proud and they've no right to be. He says, knowledge puffs up. And he's got that there as well. And then he says, love does not dishonor others. And he's just told them in chapter 11 how they're disgracing and dishonoring the poor among them. And they're not treating the body properly. You see what's going on here? Love does not delight in evil. He told them in chapter 5 how they were ignoring evil and immorality in their midst. You see what's going on here? As this is being read, it's not that they're soaring with some poetry to a high place like at a wedding. They are feeling that Paul is sitting there pointing the finger and saying, will you take a look at yourselves? Love is not always nice, is not always tolerant, is not always inoffensive. Sometimes love is powerful and pointed. But remember, this is coming from a man who has poured out his life for these people. That is what love is. He's letting rip. Love isn't just being inoffensive. It's actually having a heart that wants to see the people around you become like Jesus. And then the last part of it, why it all matters. Ah, there's quite a lot here. Sorry about the small words. Go back home and read it. 
He says love never fails. Now, again, we read that and we misread it a little bit and think, oh, well, that means love goes on and on and on, and my love never fails. You know, people say that, I'll love you forever, don't they? The trouble is love does fail if we're talking about human love in that sense. What Paul means when he says love never fails isn't that romantic weddings go on forever. He's saying this, love now continues into eternity. You see, prophecies don't because one day, as we've said, all the prophecies will be fulfilled. One day, they won't need any special words of God to tell people the truth because they'll know it all. One day, you will not need a preacher because anything the preacher says to you, you'll say, God told me that. I don't need you. One day, knowledge won't matter because we'll know everything. When God reveals the truth of the universe to us in the resurrection days, all of these things will be complete. That's what Paul means when he talks about childish things. What he's saying is this, you know, the things that we have just now, right now, are like childish things. They're really important. They're really important. But someday, someday, we'll clear out the attic and we'll throw out the baby baths and they'll not be needed anymore. What will be left will be the mature person. That's what God is making you in Jesus Christ. You won't need the prophecies, and you won't need the preaching, and you won't need the books. You won't need any of these things, but love will remain. Love will remain. Just now, we see things in mirrors, and they are distorted, and we are glass grasping at the truth. That is what we do, is even as we read the Bible. We are grasping at the truth. We sometimes get it so wrong, but at some point, all of that will fade away, and we will know everything in the same way that God knows us now and loves us. And what will remain is love. There will be no need to hope. There will be no need to have faith, because you'll know it all as fact. But love will remain when we are in that great kingdom, that great communion with the Lord and with all His people. And so, Paul is saying the ultimate truth is love. And this is something I think we need to understand as a church, to know the meaning of love and to know that is what we are about, reflecting it because of Jesus' love for us, for His death for us on the cross. And allowing that to be more important than presbytery planning, more important than the styles of our music or the way we do prayer or how we structure things. These things matter for a while, but they are not ultimate. The church in its relationships reflects and points to eternity, to that great day when all of God's people will be remade in that new creation. And we'll speak more of that as we look next week at 1 Corinthians 15.